Welcome and welcome back to Lottel in our series Queer Conversation. In this episode, you will meet Elliot Freeman. Elliot is doing their PhD in queer archives and also volunteers at the Australian Queer Archives in Melbourne. Why is it so hard to find queer history? What does archiving include? And how can we make queer history more accessible? Welcome, Elliot. I'm really, really glad that you could join us today in Queer Conversation. You are doing your PhD in Queer Archive and you volunteer at the Australian Queer Archive in Melbourne. Rottel also has spent the last almost three years now archiving our own media. I don't know if you have come across this great 30 years archive of Lottel that's available on our website. Tell us what is involved in the art of archiving. So, um, that's a big question. <laughs> archiving can sort of be as complicated or as simple as you want it to be or as the situation dictates. So, um, if you have any sort of uh, folder management system in your email inbox, you could argue that's a form of record keeping because you're managing your information. Or at the other end of the scale, you have, you know, a country's national archives where they keep sort of, you know, centuries of history safe for, for future generations. So it's a it's a big field with lots of complexity. And my research focuses on queer archives, which is even more complex. <laughs> Because you would have limited um, access to information. What kind of keywords you are using to find information, um, keywords that I guess we, if we would search anything, say, in on, on Google, we put in LGBT and gay and things pop up. What are the tricks of the trade? So um, this is a, quite a substantial issue in my research. And what's coming up is that knowing what to search for and where to look, um, both in terms of keywords and also navigating the complexities of the filing systems is a really specialized skill set, which means that, first of all, it's really limited to not only sort of trained and experienced historians, but the ones who specialize in these areas of research. And that means that, you know, members of the public, you know, queer youth coming up who want to learn about their history, they can't easily find these materials. They have to rely on, on other sources. So uh, historians or the internet, which isn't always the most accurate source. So my research is really trying to find a way that we can make these materials open to everyone, not just historians with those really specialized skill sets. So a really good example is um, uh, if you want to look, so let's look at Australia. So when we began uh, prosecuting people for um, uh, vagrancy, for example, sort of in the you know 1800s, Sometimes that can mean that people were actually out cross-dressing, dressing in men's clothes with a woman's body or in women's clothes with a men's body, as they would have understood it at the time. Um, but we wouldn't think to search for vagrancy. You would want to search for, you know, trans, transgender, non-binary, gender diverse. But those terms don't mean anything in an archival system. Um, another really good example is the complexities in trying to find records of... Um, men being charged for having sex with other men, which unfortunately are the majority of records that we have for queer history. Um, you 
see a real evolution in language over time. So starting with buggery to sodomy to indecent assault. And there are real nuances in that language, both in terms of an archival system, but also in terms of keeping users safe. We don't necessarily want people to have to search for these terms when looking for records about people like them. That's not a pleasant experience. Um, so I'm sort of trying to, to understand what we can do as archivists to make archives more inclusive and friendly and safe spaces for all users, not just for the people who are in sort of the dominant powerful groups. And this is why it is so important to have inclusive language now moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the census is a really good example of this. So I think, you know, a lot of people in Australia will remember the last census and there were a lot of issues surrounding how gender and sexuality were represented or not represented in the census. Um, I remember there was, you know, male, female, non-binary sex, which is not really a thing. Um, And obviously in the moment for people filling out the census, that's not a nice experience. That's not an affirming experience. But if we think, you know, 99 years down the track, when potentially those census records are open for historians to use, will they see an accurate picture of queer life in Australia if it wasn't captured in the first place in those census records? So it's not only an issue today around safe, inclusive language, it's also an issue for 100, 200 years in the future for safe, inclusive and accurate language. Um, it's really important, I think, for people to not only see themselves in history, to see their queer ancestors in history, but also to be seen as themselves in history when people 500 years down the line look back at them as a queer ancestor. They should have the right to represent themselves accurately and authentically and the record keeping systems systems have a a moral requirement to provide that i would say the real value for me in you know going into the the queer archives and you know just for a couple of hours a week and what i've been doing recently is um creating uh finding aids for collections so i go through and i write up um basically a detailed description of a collection so that if someone wants to use it, they know what's inside, the dates, the people involved. That's a recent project I've been doing. But the value I get from the queer archives in terms of my research is that it really reaffirms the value of the work that I'm at least trying to do. Um, you know, I spend a lot of my research time thinking about the challenges and the negatives and the difficulties that we have to overcome in trying to make queer history visible in these big mainstream institutions. So national archives, state archives, university collections, the big monoliths. And it's very comforting to then go into a queer community archive where the fact that we need to represent queer history isn't even a question. Of course we have to do that. And that's simply the work we're there to do in a lovely community space and so i found that balance very uh very affirming and very positive um and really helpful in reminding me that there's a reason i'm doing the work um so we we established um, not only for you but also for um at the moment anyway um anybody else who's trying to look for information on lgbtqi plus history it is quite difficult And, you know, Google only takes you that far. What about lesbian history in particular? 
Is that harder and why? So um, this is where we get into sort of those uh, complex sort of socio-political historical aspects of this work. So unfortunately in Australia, um, our big archival, not, not unfortunately, uh, in Australia, our big archival institutions are predominantly government archives. So they're government-run institutions that preserve government records. As a result, most of what we have of queer history are records documenting um, persecution, persecution and prosecution of queer people. Now, sex between men historically has been illegal. Sex between women was not. So as a result, because so many of the records are criminal court records, we have far more for sex between men or presumed male people than we do between women. That's not to say there aren't any, there are, it's simply a matter of volume. Because if you don't have those criminal records, those government state records, then you're relying on personal records, letters, diaries, photographs, which are far more often lost. Um, you know, we don't have huge warehouses of diaries of people in the past because they tend to go missing or be damaged or um, and that's also assuming people created them in the first place. You know, how many people do we know now who consistently keep a diary? It's not the most common practice. Um, so we're hoping that, you know, a queer woman in the past kept a diary accurately and in detail, documented details of her queerness, kept the diary safe, and that successive generations of family or friends also kept the diary safe. So the, the, the likelihood gets slimmer and slimmer. Um, and even quite famous examples uh, like Anne Lister's, I think, five million word diary, large sections are encoded. And so it becomes a bit trickier to, to find these stories. Um, there are a few very good examples of lesbian history, though. A favourite of mine from Australia is um, uh, an inquiry in 1841 into... Um, uh, the Cascades female factory in Hobart. So this was a, a convict establishment for women and it was sort of intended to promote more feminine behaviour. They were doing seamstress work, things like that. But they did this inquiry because they found a lot of um, uh, sin taking place in the factory. They were finding that women were having sex with each other um, and the inquiry documentation describes a uh, what is it a fiendish fondness for sin I believe is one of the phrases um in interviews with some of the the women held there they talk about nailing each other was the slang that they used um and I believe somewhere else in the report they document um instances of women using a um uh, artificial devices secured to the person um <laughs> so it's, you do find these amazing records they're just not quite as numerous as we would like, unfortunately. So this was a government inquiry. Um, and this is a really important part to understand about the difficulty of queer history in Australia, particularly is that um, our archival institutions and also the systems we use, the processes, the ways we manage archives come from a government focus. They're designed for government records, which means that Inevitably, when we look for queer history now, we have to essentially look for, rec look for evidence of the oppressed that was created by the oppressors. 
we have to look for evidence of queer persecution that was created by the people doing the persecuting. And so we lose the voices of the actual queer people. We just have evidence of the events. Sometimes um, when we're lucky, we have court depositions where people actually got to speak and we can hear them speak through history, which are fantastic. And you can get some great examples of personality coming through. Um, but again, these aren't always easy to find. You have to know where to look. You can't unfortunately just search LGBTQ or queer into Google and have all these wonderful things pop up. You have to know where to look. Our, our life has been written out of history in many cases. Have you come across anything like that where you discovered something that was written out? So this is sort of sort of one of the core questions I'm looking at in my research is how can we make space in archives to invite in those sort of lost voices and those lost perspectives? You know, in a place like the National Archives, which is designed to manage government records, um, The, the emphasis on record keeping is preserving context. So who did what, when, where, why, and then where was the document that evidences that thing created by who, when, where, why. So context is key. As a result, what can happen is that anything that's deemed uh, subjective or personal maybe isn't accounted for in building that context. So, you know, if I, if I sent a... A, a rep, you know, a, a letter that I found from 1850, for example, that I thought, you know, seemed like very clear evidence these two women were in love, and I sent it to a queer friend, they might go, oh yes, absolutely, that definitely seems very gay. Um, someone else who isn't queer might not see it that way. And so we have this difference of view, this difference of perspective, and how can we count for that in capturing the context of this document from, you know, two, three hundred years ago? So that's sort of the, the question I'm exploring is how can we still do a good job of record keeping while also making our archives more representative and more inclusive and not just for specialized historians, but for everyone. So how can people access the archive? I think, I think generally the role of every archive is at least should be <laughs> to make history accessible. Um, We're quite lucky in Australia. We have something called Trove, which is a, um, a centrally, uh, essentially it's a centralized portal that allows you to search through archives and library collections from all the major institutions. And a lot of the historians uh, who specialize in queer history that I've spoken to have still used Trove in some capacity. Um, it's a really useful tool. It just, again, really depends on you knowing the language or the kinds of records you have to search for. Um, and I think ultimately we want to move towards a space where the big archival institutions and the small community archives, like the queer archives, can complement each other. You know, if you want to look at, know about queer history from, you know, let's say the 1920s onwards, absolutely come down to the queer archives um, there are some amazing people there who are walking encyclopedias who will be able to tell you some amazing stories and show you some amazing things. But we can't always rely on community archives to do the work that the big institutions need to be doing. And we need to 
create ways for those big institutions to invite in more perspectives because they are very under-resourced, they're underfunded, they're understaffed. And so we can't sort of expect them to, to move mountains immediately. But if we start having these conversations, then hopefully we can move towards a space where, you know, people can hop onto Google and do some searching and find this history opening up before them. Um, we're just, yeah, not there yet, unfortunately. Um, have you got a personal hero that you come across in, in your research? Oh, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't get to spend as much time just trawling for queer records as I would like. I'm busy thinking about the reasons I can't. <laughs> um, but I will say, I was thinking the other day, um, I was going through some of my uh, childhood books that I still have stored somewhere from my mother's house. And I found this book I had about uh, Queen Christina of Sweden, who I was obsessed with as a young child, which now makes quite a lot of sense. Um, she was Queen of Sweden in the 17, uh, 17th century, and she never married. She was known for wearing men's clothes. She was highly educated. And I was found it very funny to reflect back and look at this sort of, you know, quite queer seeming person and know that I was, yeah, very interested in her as a child. That was quite a, a funny moment of reflection. Yeah, there are some amazing, um, amazing figures in history that, you know, the, especially royalty, I will say, is much easier to find. So if you hop onto, you know, Wikipedia, these figures are really relatively easy to find. So I encourage anyone who's interested, look up Queen Christina, look up, you know, Joan of Arc, another amazing figure, Anne Lister. Um, these women are there. We just need to yeah, look for some more, particularly in Australia. And the other big challenge we face now, of course, is that everything's digital, everything's online, social media, instant messaging, um, not even email so much anymore. And th these things are much harder to preserve than paper. Paper's quite quite hardy. It can withstand quite a lot. You can pop it in the back of a cupboard for 50 years and often it will be fine. The digital's much more difficult. So I would encourage everyone to, you know, preserve your history. You never know whether it's your grandkids or your great grandkids or someone centuries in the future might find you very interesting. Mm. Great call for action at the end of this interview. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie. If you enjoy queer conversation, make sure to subscribe and share. You can also head over to our website, lotl.com, or follow us on all our social media. My name is Silke Bader, and thank you for your company. Mm.